Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Catherine Bennett. Professor Bennett has a distinguished career in public health practice, research, academic governance, and teaching. Catherine is the Alfred Deacon Professor and Chair in Epidemiology. She joined Deakin in 2009 after more than eight years with the University of Melbourne and previously a variety of senior positions in the New South Wales and Victorian state governments. So Catherine, thank you for joining the show. My pleasure. I want to start off, um, you're well known for your your career in health, but I I want to start off with your own health and um, perhaps we, we could start off as growing up and talk about that. Yeah, look, I think um, I had some some nasty health challenges when I was at university, actually. Grew up really fit and robust and, you know, active, um, but was, was always, I guess, conscious of that. I also had a, a, my mother in particular who was, who was an older mother by the time she had me and I was second youngest of five kids, um, had some significant health events early in her life. They're, in fact, my earliest memories um, include my mother being very unwell, you know, it does, I, I guess, shape those things that you're very aware of and, and probably does influence your career. I hadn't thought about it specifically. I think as I went on studying, you know, there was an, an expectation I would do medicine. You know, if you had good enough marks, there, there was sort of a, a, a push to go in that direction. But um, at the same time, I think I did have a, a broader interest in health and having been exposed to the healthcare system very early on, both myself as a uni student, but also um, particularly in my mother's case, I think you then see the whole health system and realise how it's all got to work together to have good health outcomes for the population. So do you think you were inspired by what you saw or you think you um, felt it could do with more input? It's, it's, it's probably both. You know, you come across people who are who are fantastic, who make a real difference in, in a health crisis, and then you also look at the failings of the system or um, I remember in my mother's case she needed rehabilitation um, later in life after she'd had a stroke and and in a way it was a real advantage for her having been an older mum. You know, she had she had five kids under under the age of, you know, early 20s and they thought she was our grandmother. And when they realised she was our mother, I think it probably helped step up the interventions and the and the input into her rehab. So, I, you know, you could sort of see that all these things were symptoms of a system that was always running too, um, too close to the bone, you know. There wasn't enough in the system where you had to fight hard just to get some pretty basic um, health support at times. So I think, you know, watching the people that worked in that system, some of them absolutely fantastic, others, you know, couldn't do as good a job because we weren't resourcing it properly or we didn't have the right investments in the right place. So absolutely, I think all those things help you see the bigger picture and it's easy to sit here and just criticise everything. No system, you know, with, with finite resources is going to be perfect, but it's actually trying to find the solutions. That's where my interest sits. You, you made an interesting point there. I think you said you sort of ended up in medicine because you had the the marks, if you like. And I, I remember growing up, everyone thinks you, if you do well at school, you'll end up as a lawyer or a doctor. Um, is that is it as simplistic as that? Yeah, no, I think I think an expectation comes. I think my family, my parents, 
um, who both did it pretty tough but were extraordinary people, you know. Um, my mother was educated through to university but at a very young age. She was at university when she was 15 and lost her father only a couple of years later and then went out to work to help raise her siblings. Um, my father was, was a very late child in his family, you know, 30 years, 20 to 30 years post his other siblings. So his parents were at retirement age. And, um, and so he had to actually go to work as an 11-year-old, you know, to try and help rebuild their, their, their nest egg for uh, retirement because they couldn't afford to, you know, to grow a, a, a child in pre-superannuation days. So, so I learned a lot about how they valued education, but they actually wanted for all of us, being one of five, you know, the best careers or the most secure careers. So, so medicine and law were it, you know, they were the things that you'd aspire to. And interestingly, none of us actually went in. I'm not clinically trained. I trained in, in the sciences and, and love my work contributing to the evidence that sits behind evidence-based practice and working in infectious disease research, but didn't actually go that path. But so it was, wasn't just that you had the marks, therefore you could do it and should do it. And in fact, we, you know, it's most important that we have people who have their heart in the right place that are doing it for the right reasons. But at the same time, it was probably also because I had this natural interest in health and clinical research and, you know, and solutions, being solutions focused. So, and yeah, had a science brain as well. That that thing of of having let's say elder parents, it's obviously we only know what we what we experience ourselves. But do you sense there was, uh, I guess, a different way of being brought up than perhaps to some of some of your peers? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, we we were much closer to um, the thinking from the Second World War and you know all those other things that people might get through their grandparents. But it's quite different when it's in your parents' ethos as well. So, so we, we, we probably were in some ways old for our time as kids because we were hearing directly firsthand, you know, why it was so important to value money in a way that wasn't about trying to win money but actually respecting money and knowing, you know, that it's, that it's not guaranteed in life and that you must treat it with care and you must be thoughtful and not and not, you know, all over the place with your spending. So we were taught to to respect money, to know how to save and to have a long-term view very early in life. And I do think that comes from, you know, the, my parents' generation and what they were exposed to in the war years and immediately post-war. That would be a very, uh, very Scottish philosophy. Um, <laughs> well, as I said, it careful. they were generous as well, you know. But we, we would have a, um, a ration night where – Unfortunately, it would always coincide with one of our sports nights, but we would only have we would not have a main meal, and the money that we didn't spend on the lamb chops or whatever it was for that night, we gave to you know what was in Campuchia or the the, the sort of focus uh, international charities at the time. So we were taught kind of charity and generosity as part of that, even though we didn't go on holidays we didn't we didn't even have a color television when I was a kid so it was yeah it was trying to it was a balanced approach but it was I think a good education so getting the getting the priorities priorities right um your parents obviously being older um the, the longevity is is more of a challenge than, than it would be for for younger parents so maybe 
um, we could sort of explore that. Yeah, I mean, I lost both my parents when they were quite young as well. So given the generation gap and and losing them young, um, so they were both in their 60s, so not old. Um, that, that certainly means we've got a large family, but suddenly you're you're out there. And, and in fact, you know, both parents were unwell in later years. And so it also meant you have that caring role, which a lot of people do experience as well. But again, I think it was really about you know, recognising, as, as a friend said after I lost my my father, who died after my mother, but, you know, do you, f- do you feel like you've been pushed up a generation? And I thought that's that's true. You know, here you are, barely, I just turned 30, and you think, yeah, I'm, um, I'm glad that I've, that I, I was forced to grow up career-wise and, but also um, planning-wise in terms of, being not financially well off at that stage, I've been studying most of my life, but still, but secure enough because I put things in place to um, to not feel as vulnerable. You know, when suddenly at thirty, you're you're the older generation. But yeah, excellent. Okay, um, I understand that at one point later, you you had a, a breast cancer diagnosis, which would be something terribly confronting. I mean, what what can you share about that time in your life? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things, isn't it? You you go through life thinking, what would it be like to have a cancer diagnosis, and uh, <clears throat> and then when it happens, it's um, it's it is a surreal moment where suddenly all those past thoughts you might have had about something suddenly are in your world. But in fact, you then it, it just changes everything. You just have to deal with it. But like anyone who has a serious illness, you suddenly you know your your life changes. You move from working and talking and mixing in a certain way to suddenly being very, you know, working around your medical appointments and trying to imagine if you'll still have hair in six months' time or, you know, what what this looks like. And you're also managing other people's worries as well. And so trying to deal with it yourself and being conscious that this is a, there, there is no edge, there's sort of ripples that then go out to your family and friends that you're also also conscious of and having had quite a few other friends who live with cancer for some time you know it's also trying to have normality in all of that so so my initial reaction I was actually committed to going overseas on a to a couple of conferences the same week literally that the diagnosis was made and so they agreed for me to go because they wanted me to start some kind of chemotherapy before we went into surgery and um and so traveled traveled the world for four weeks which was which was pretty crazy going to medical conferences so I knew I had my medical colleagues with me so that was good right and um and I decided just to you know take cancer in my stride so I was I was using it to my full advantage you know someone was saying can you hurry up and I quietly point out that I had cancer, only to my friends, of course. But, you know, I think it was it was adjusting to that reality. And and some friends um, didn't know. And and by the time I told them I was I was through that initial stage and thankfully by then already had a good prognosis and and they said, Oh, you don't sound any different. And to me, that was everything. You know, I'd I'd had the experience, I can empathize in different ways now with people who've had life threatening illness. But at the same time, you're, you know, you are still yourself, and you haven't, you haven't been defeated or reinvented by this. You've, you've been forced to grow up. You've been through things you wish you never did. 
it's very expensive to be unwell. I hadn't quite realised that. You know, with your private health insurance, you've still got these massive gaps. But it was, um, yeah, life life is sweeter as well when you when you feel it's. I'd always appreciated life, I think, but you know, then it, yeah, becomes something a bit more um, precious yet again if you can get back to a point where you're healthy and and you don't have to think about this every day. But you're always in the back of your mind treasure each day that bit more. It's an odd thing, isn't it, that people seem <clears throat> seem to appreciate life more after a challenge like that. It'd be amazing if we could get people to appreciate it more without having to, to go through that. I know, and you hear it, but I, I think, and I did, I think I really, you know, having lost parents early and so on, and I had lost significant friends, close friends in my life pretty much every decade. And so I had dealt with loss and I did treasure life, but there's still something else about that, you know, the survival um, and what that gives you. But also I had, I had, I'd lost a friend to breast cancer, a very close friend, just one of those significant losses earlier in my life. And then I had two, um, two colleagues who were um, diagnosed around the same time and both of those died from the breast cancer. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that sense of, um, yeah, it's, it's that survival thing. And then there's always that element of, of guilt in a way, but I always think the only way you can live with that kind of why me, why do I get to survive is by treasuring what you've still got in front of you and and giving back, you know, and I think it does give you a level of empathy that that is helpful when you're working in, in the health sector. Yeah. So we talk a lot in, in the series about, about change and the sort of impact of making changes. Did that trigger any other than the sort of, let's say, the gratefulness or the, or did it trigger any other, other changes in the way that you approach life? Yeah, it did. You know, I always say breast cancer has probably saved my life in some ways. You know, I, I didn't have good work-life balance. I'd actually just relatively recently, within the two years, moved universities and, and despite the fact that I didn't, didn't actually think it was possible, I was working harder. And so I, I would work literally, you know, um, when I was still at the University of Melbourne, I'd be in the office till 11 o'clock at night. I'd be working weekends when I was on a, on a busy run and that could be extended. You always sort of thought you had it in control, but you didn't. Um, and it, it just becomes self-fulfilling because when you're not doing other things and you have less things trying to draw you out and you just become consumed. So I thought that's not going to happen. And so after that time, when I went on my international trips, I always combined it with some time overseas just so that I wouldn't, have that, you know, the, the physical trial of a long-haul flight, you know, there and back within within three or four days. And, you know, with, with my partner in particular, who not long after that, he retired from his full-time day job. Now, of course, he has 15 part-time, <laughs> more than full-time day jobs. But, 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 yeah, so combining some of that in, I think, was, was good for my mind, my soul, as well as as well as my health. So I actually did get very fit over that course of time. I had lots of surgery. I can't remember how many operations, six or seven operations over over a five year or so time period. Um, and and it took a while. I mean, I've, I've now got COVID, ISO, weight gain, and things, which is quite devastating because I was so fit um, prior to all of this, but. At the same time, I think you do value fitness as well because it's it's something that you can both celebrate, but also um, obviously it's protective. And so, 
yeah, I think that. But work-life balance more than anything else, just trying to to keep it real and realising as a leader that you have to emulate that. You know, that's being a responsible role model is being organised enough that you can be really productive but know when to call it and not sacrifice your health or your family or whatever and, and you know, model that as, as good behaviour for a sustainable leadership, sustainable career. So you don't see your teams working till 11 o'clock at night and all the way through the weekends then? Have, have they got that balance as well? Yeah, and, and I think we work really hard to try and manage that for people so that, you know, we'll always have bursts of activity and, and we're all so motivated by what we do but at the same time, you know, there's something wrong either. Someone isn't able to work in a way that allows them to get through tasks in a reasonable time or they're getting too much work to do or they're taking on too many other things. And I think you do have to have those conversations rather than just assuming, well, they're doing it, it's okay. So you have to actively monitor that and intervene, I I do believe, because it's too late, you know, when something something goes wrong. I think the last two years have been really hard because all our people are more isolated as you work remotely and and I you know, I have literally spent two, more than two years working 100-hour weeks back-to-back every day with one day off a year, um, not always Christmas Day either. And I was going to ask which day it was. <laughs> New Year, New Year this year, Christmas Day last year, but you don't know till after it's over that actually you weren't going to have, you know, more things put on you. But um, so, you know, I know I'm not role-modelling now, but I think these are extraordinary times and I appreciate my team who's, who are also – you know, all over the shop in some in some meeting some deadlines and things. So there's also the love of the work and the energy you get from it and, you know, actually short bursts of this sort of activity I think are not a bad thing either. So you, you said in, in, in relation to, to, to breast cancer, almost this idea that you had imagined or you'd sort of gone through your mind, like what, what, what might it feel like? Now, as an epidemiologist, um, let's think, I guess, a pandemic would be one of these kind of, um, if you like, diagnoses for the world that you must have spent a lot of time thinking about and imagining. So maybe we could go back to um, early 2020 and just this idea that your preparation, if you like, was starting to, I guess, manifest itself in reality. Yeah, look, you know, when I was doing formal training in epidemiology over the years, particularly around... Um, the turn of the century, 2000, at that point we were, you know, 20 years overdue for a flu pandemic or for a pandemic, but we assumed it probably would be flu. So we're very aware of that. I worked on the Olympic Games in 2000 and so we were prepared not not just for chemical, biological, radiological incidents or bioterrorist bio incidents, but also just the fact we had this unusual movement that comes with something like the Olympic Games that, changes your d- disease threat. You, know, you could potentially see something like Ebola in Australia because you've got people that usually don't travel coming from parts of the world where they don't have a big tourist population leaving that area to suddenly having people in uh, in your community. So being very focused on that. And ironically, I'd, I'd just been um, overseas on a short sabbatical working with colleagues in Copenhagen now some of the world leaders in genomics for COVID. But when I came back, I actually contracted pneumonia of someone on the plane at the end of 
of, of October, very end of October. So we've yet to completely rule out that that might have been one of the very early um, oh, yeah. COVID <laughs> <Patient games>. zero. <laughs> but if nothing else, it gave me uh, empathy, I can tell you. So I was sort of chopping and changing between having pneumonia and trying to get back across to Perth to work with other colleagues, setting up our own work, as this whole thing was starting to unfold uh, internationally. And I was caught up in, in the public face of that quite early. Someone who interviewed me about wastewater sewage the previous year for the BBC contacted me in February and that started the media. The media just um, kind of rolled on from there. People came to me. I never, you know, sought out media. It just kept snowballing. But um, it was... I remember talking to this colleague from Copenhagen who himself came down with a very strange respiratory illness in, in December that year, 19, about, you know, do you think, what could this be? <laughs> um, and yet it's consumed both our lives for sort of different reasons. So when people ask me, you know, were you scared when you saw this emerging or we'd already had SARS and MERS, so we'd had some experience and you knew you just have to watch so closely initially but you can never really predict where it might go because you're still learning about the virus and its potential. But what scared me was when we had it on shore here and we we're actually contracting the testing. You couldn't, even if you had cold, cold symptoms in the community, you couldn't get tested by middle March 2020. So you're flying blind and you're trying to read what's happening in hospitalizations and watching what they're doing at the borders with arrivals and international visitors. But... Um, that's not the same as having a good sense of where the virus is and who's at risk. So so that was a scary time, was the virus onshore. We did all the right things early enough in Australia to contain it and that, that became clear that that was working pretty quickly. But, yeah, not having the testing and flying blind and then, of course, going through waves where, you know, you then realise how, how under-resourced we were in public health and that, that took time to... to yeah, to adjust. If, if you go back then to the, I guess what you'd learned prior to this, and the and the playbooks, and the, I guess the understanding of how pandemics would play out, how different would the, have the last two years been to what you might have expected in advance? Yeah, look, I think it's well, yeah, we always knew. I think I think the World Health Organization were a bit slow in in the declarations which a lot of people have talked about since i assumed i think um that we thought we were doing this in a more coordinated way globally um we certainly did that in australia initially but i think that then changed and and we started operating very much as a, at a as a federation at the cost of coordination and sharing of resources and so on so i think like most things you worry that other things will get in the way. We know with our big vaccination programs globally, there's always the rich and the poor countries, but there's also conflict and other things um, that, that get in the way of good public health management at a global level. And unfortunately, we saw that as well. So I think, you know, there were moments where early on, you know, I found myself having a conversation with colleagues at work, but thinking, I understand my parents more and their experience of war because we were now, you know, thinking in terms of rationed basic supplies, not just toilet paper, but actually, 
you know, the first time I'd, I'd gone out after the lockdown and went to the shops, I'd actually had a longer lockdown because I did have respiratory symptoms and so I was self-isolated. Went into the first lockdown in Victoria and then came out and went to the supermarket that nearly made me cry because I just suddenly thought the world has changed. You know, my yeah. local supermarket yeah. shelves stripped and, you know, particularly in the toilet roll department, but generally. And I so I think that that sort of connected you with a whole lot of things around um, what a massive disruption can do, let alone the health component to that. So, but on the other side of it, all the things I had trained in, which was about public health communication through teaching, through our research, but also the analytic skills and so on, were all very much, you know, at the centre of it. My, I was, I was fascinated at the same time. I mean, you know, even if I had no paid work in this area at all, I would have still been, you know, watching it as closely as I was every single day because it was, it was. Um, this first real world experience of a pandemic in in our time that was truly truly global, and the first one in the history of the world where we had all the challenges we were aware of, including you know how quickly people move around the world, managing people on airplanes and all those other things which we hadn't had to deal with in in the previous true pandemic. It was fascinating the sort of as you say no tests and no data to this sense that we had lots of data and kind of feels to two years in that we've, it's hard to know who has it, who doesn't have it and what have you. So I guess people's level of interest may have faded away level, the general, the general population, at least what is going on, I guess, behind the scenes in terms of, I guess, understanding of different waves as they emerge and so on. Yeah. I mean, and when it comes to large-scale outbreaks, we learned a lot from the HIV pandemic, as it was. But that was a really interesting phenomenon in terms of pandemics. That was a very, uh, in the end, incredibly educated community of people who were most at risk. So the, the gay males were the, the people really in the firing line of HIV. And there was a partnership working with the medical community. And... But what you needed in, in COVID was this partnership with the whole population to actually really build that. And part of that, and, and you know, of course I'm going to say this because I'm an epidemiologist, but it is about numbers and people see that as in, information and insight. And I think people you know, really struggled to get their heads around the fact that a simple number that appears on your screen or your phone each day with the case numbers is an incredibly complex composite number driven by testing patterns and a whole range of things, people's engagement, people's fear of government, whether they report or not, all those things that impact it. So the data is always poor and when you're monitoring it for trends and things are changing quickly, you can still monitor for trends. But as soon as we were... Um, rolling out the vaccination program, as soon as we were trying to look at a whole lot of other shifting covariates in all of this, the need for really good data became even more explicit. And I think we, we, we relied on passive data, but we also relied on modelling. That was something else that was new about the pandemic was very early on saying, well, if we didn't do anything, what might it look like? And is that an option? And if not, okay, then we look at the list of things to do. But you need really good data or um, 
really sophisticated data analysis to actually take the raw data and generate the parameters you need to put into your model so that your model is reliable. And we never got to a point where the routinely collected data as part of the outbreak response was ever in a format that could be readily analysed. It was a lot of it was in text and in the initial stages in Victoria at least. And so we weren't getting the data out of the second wave that helped us understand the virus as it moved through the community. So the modelling was being done, but not with the parameters coming from our own data in the way it could and should have. As time goes on, you get less engagement with testing and other things. We've got less risk of serious illness, so less people test for that reason. So you've got to be active in data collection. And there's been very few examples in Australia, but not a lot compared to the UK. You know, they had 100,000 people in the REACT-1 study each wave and went through and had, I think, 13 or 14 passes where they went out and actively screened 100,000 people in the population each time. That's what we needed. And we never had the, the push or the funding or resources to do that. And each state trying to do their own thing wasn't ever going to, you know, bring together the critical mass of resources you needed to do something like that. But that, that I think, was the thing that we could have really benefited from. So what, what tends to happen, um, <clears throat> let's call it recency bias, but people will then adjust for the last pandemic and the next one will be different, if you like. At least that's how it works in financial markets. We always assume, I guess, the next crisis will look something like the other one and then people get blindsided by by something different. How, mu- how much can we learn from... COVID that we can apply to the likes of, well, monkeypox is currently the yeah. topic of the of the moment. But like, yeah. how, and how much is it going to be different? I, I'm not, I don't understand that the, the, that sort of dynamic in in health. Yeah, um, we of course had SARS, which is another coronavirus like COVID and MERS. COVID is different. So, so the first thing is not to be blinded by past experience. And I'll give you an example. You know, with with SARS and MERS your uh, infectious develop- infection you know, developed to the point where you had symptoms and then you became infectious and that lasted for about 10 days. With COVID, the fundamental difference was that you are infectious before your symptoms develop. So you're completely oblivious. Unless you know you're exposed and are isolating, you're out and about and you have this pre-clinical or pre-symptom um, infectious period and you could also be infectious and have no symptoms or incredibly mild symptoms. That's fundamentally different. Everything you knew from SARS and MERS, you then have to put aside. Some things work, like if you know you're exposed, you're managing people in a hospital who have the infection. But actually, your disease control methods have to adjust for the fact that you've got this this level of transmission that you can never contain because it's happening blind, it's happening by stealth, and um, you have to factor that in in the way you, you plan ahead and even monitor contacts of cases. So it's a combination. We also know from every infectious disease outbreak, local or global that we've had, basic hygiene, distancing masks will work because you're, you're actually physically distancing. And so same with monkeypox. But thankfully, monkeypox, you need very direct skin-to-skin contact or handling of um, the same bed clothing or clothing. So you don't see that same distal spread. But the other thing I think we've learned in all of this is um, the incredible ability of the population to 
to learn quickly to be on board. In Australia, we did have incredible compliance when you compare it to a lot of other countries in what was asked of people and engagement in the science and in the data and people wanting to understand it. So that's that's really good to understand because that then is a platform for other responses. But equally, we have to learn from the mistakes. And I think, you know, the way we communicated the data availability as we've talked about, um, all of those things, um, then you have to, yeah, do it differently next time. And I, I think everything we've learned now, we should be rolling from an outbreak response into prevention, whether that's between COVID waves or between pandemics, including working closely with community, not having one-size-fits-all responses because we're all different. And if infectious diseases is about how you mix with other people, we know in our very culturally diverse world that that looks very different depending on where you live, your age, your cultural background. So we need to use all of that, that understanding of the nuance in human um, dynamics that actually influence outbreaks to then, yeah, get off to a, a, a better informed start next time because we've now got this experience to draw on. And I guess we're, you said it was 20 years late, but at least in that 20-year period, the internet has um, become almost ubiquitous. So I guess information flows have changed from perhaps when you were looking at this at the time of the uh, of the Olympics. That's right. I mean, at the time we were talking about, you know, 20 years, we weren't saying late, it wasn't like we were missing it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was overdue because it was anticipated. Um, we'd already started to move to some interesting developments. Like we, for the first time in New South Wales, where I was based at the time with New South Wales Health, had um, automated kind of uptake of laboratory reports into the health department. And that, that sort of happened, a lot of this was sort of happening around the time of the Olympics because of the Olympics. So so that was that was good. You didn't have to wait for the lag where individual private laboratories might batch their results for the week and send anything notifiable to the health department. Now it was kind of being sucked out of the system automatically. So that was that was a real development. And we'd started doing more genetic genomic work, which has been a big thing in this outbreak. Um, and automation has been fantastic. I mean, I know people got concerned when they had long queues for their PCR tests. The extraordinary number, the fact New South Wales could process 120,000 PCR tests in a day, you know, you couldn't have even dreamt of that 20 years ago. Whole genome sequencing was something that cost hundreds of dollars for every single sample and it would take ages for you to, you know, get get 10 samples all genomically um Evaluated. So, yeah, we've technology has come along, IT has come along, and while we wore some of the cost of that in terms of people movement and all the other things, um, and dis and misinformation being shared, you know, unfettered through yeah. through some of those networks. At the same time, yeah, it's uh, it's been powerful, and we've had, you know, every journal article on COVID publicly available even before peer review, so people like myself who do the peer review can actually access the papers and not have to wait for peer review. You can see where see where we're going. But um, just that, you know, free availability, free access for people from any part of the world to COVID, new and emerging research was incredibly important to keep, to keep everyone in, in the link and also able to... Um, you know, particularly the poorer countries, you know, not be disadvantaged because they might not have the same critical mass of research. 
Something I think about a lot is uh, you know, mental health is, uh, and, and you touched on, you used the word isolation a couple of times in there. A lot of people have gone through a lot in the last couple of years, but we've also seen, you know, again, back to the fact that the ubiquity of the internet, um, to me, in one sense, it could almost be described as some form of epidemic in, in the mental health world. Are the techniques um, as a science behind, you say, viral transmission, is there, is there anything we can learn from from your field to apply in the mental health space? Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, I don't consider myself mental health expert by any means, but there are some great mental health um, epidemiologists and people that were that were both fascinated and concerned about this incredible perturbation to people's lives, you know, working from home or being in work that you couldn't do from home so you're, you've lost work um, and all the other bits to this big puzzle. Some people, um, and this is now going from what I've read, but, you know, actually did quite well. They adapted very well. Um, some people preferred it because they're the people that actually work well in isolation but quite like the way you interacted through Zoom and, you know, could switch it off and work. Um, and you could tell as soon as they opened the office up again, there were people who were like, boom, straight back in the office because they missed that person interaction and that got them away from the distractions of home, you know, they could actually focus. And and others probably still haven't come back yet, you know, because they yeah, I they can't find that was the way to do it. So it's 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 kind of hard to bring people back in and check in on everyone and make sure they're doing okay. In the mental health space, there is no doubt. You know, they saw a massive rise in the number of particularly young people seeking help. Longer term, we still don't know where this is going to go. It's disrupted people's educations at really critical times in their lives. We had kids who'd never been to school in the classroom who were, you know, in grade two or three, um, and we had. Um, people who are at their, their ultimate years in their schooling education trying to transition to universities in this incredible um, switch to online learning in many settings. But also there was some interesting phenomenon and, and one was I think some people who hadn't engaged with health systems but were experiencing mental health issues. When COVID came along, it probably destigmatized it. We actually had more discussion about it and people like Pat McGorry and others who really worked hard to put it on the table right up front and so that there was resourcing into um, making additional services available and trying to work telehealth and other options. But it may have actually picked up some people who otherwise would have been missed by the health system because it was suddenly you had a reason to, to be feeling terrible um, and you might get that managed. But... I don't think that'll ever compensate for the people who, who who did tip over because it was just too much to try and, you know, particularly for your age group. So when they look at schools, it's very different across years. The younger ones were impacted, but um, some of the older groups actually did really, really well um, academically um, as well. So I think, yeah, short-term, short-term different groups were really impacted and longer term, we've still yet to see how it plays out. But we can't take our eye off the ball because there'll be, you know, you have to provide the supports longer term, not just think you've fixed it now and, and we can move on. Now, just sort of sort of wrapping up, just thinking about your, your own journey, you know, you, you sort of start off with this, I guess, understanding of education, understanding of health, and it's led to you, I guess, in this sort of intersection, if you like, of, of academia and health. But what do you think it is that really... Um, made for for a successful career? I think it is about my passion and and 
that draws you in. So you're putting the work in anyway. I think I do get energy from, uh, well, I know I get energy from what I do and, you know, finding some answers, getting them out there or enabling other researchers who are doing really important work. It's energising and then you just put more in. And so I think, it, you know, it makes me a better researcher because I'm in the field that I'm passionate about and that you then, it, it just builds your expertise you know, you, you build collaborations easily because you find like-minded people and I think I think that works. You know, I think people get drawn to people who are who are passionate and energetic about what they do and it, it sort of has a starts to have a bit of a life of its own. So I think that, that energy is in, incredibly important. And I also, you know, I, I used to have this adage about there's nothing as disabling as an excuse and that actually came very early in my study student life but I watched people around me who were who were really good you know and that were distracted and wouldn't sort of put their head down and just get on with it and and it was like something would come along and and it was like they'd almost use that as an excuse to then not do well and you'd always be left wondering what that person could have achieved because you know they'd, they'd, they'd leave their essay till the very last minute and then the printer would break down and then they have to submit it handwritten and then they'd get a, an average mark but you never knew whether it was just because they were in a frenzy and you think, well, why didn't you just plan better and know and know really what you could you could achieve so it's probably two things one was uncertainty or lack of confidence and and letting other things get in the way and then allowing them to push you back so you never test yourself but the other was, you know, like we always say, it's really how you respond to the challenges that is the mark of the epidemiologist. <laughs> and so I think that's been motivating for me too, to not, to not let difficult situations in the workplace or health or other things in your life stop you, that sense that, well, that's when they've defeated you. You've got to find a way to work around these things or work with these things but don't lose sight of your own goals. And I think if you can do that and not just say, well, I've tried, this has now happened, I'm giving up, you know, but to actually compensate or move around or or push aside the things that otherwise would be excuses, that's been important to me to to keep going. And, I'm, and I think my life's all the richer for it because you don't sort of stop at some point where things are difficult, you keep moving on and they pale into the past pretty quickly. Yes. And aside from the obviously the, the the tragic cost of a pandemic, as a, as a epidemiologist, do you think that just to have that sort of fully rounded, fulfilling career, that it was nice that a pandemic came along? Yeah, look, it drew together all the things that I've worked on over my life, and you feel useful in a different kind of way when something like this happens. And career wise, without sounding like I'm giving up my career, but <laughs> the same time, <laughs> it, it, it is this way that brings it all together. Um, it, it's happened to me before working in epidemiology. I also work in physical anthropology, so skeletal identification, another bit of my, you know, human variability, health, biostatistical work. And that joined up together um, when we had the sad sequence of events in East Timor. And I suddenly realised that two what I thought were very different parts of my world actually came together because they were looking for infectious disease, people to set up surveillance systems for the, for the population, but also wanted forensic anthropologists because of the, the mass graves. And I just I hadn't really sat down to think about when all those skills would come together. So now in a, in a pandemic, equally a terrible situation for the world, but one where everything you have worked on over time comes together in a way that you're drawing on those skills, whether it's field epidemiology out there on outbreaks or 
research into household transmission or communication and high-level, you know, analytics, all of those things, you know, you now just are grateful that you can draw on them. And I do think it's been good for epidemiology. It's been fantastic having more people approach us again about these careers. It's given it a different kind of visibility. And I, I think that's really important because we need more epidemiologists. So if it translates to more people seeing that this is a career um, a career course, then I think, you know, we're, uh, we'll be in a better place for having more epidemiologists in the future. That sounds like a good place to finish. And if anyone wants to become an epidemiologist, uh, please give uh, Catherine a call. Thank you very much, Catherine, for joining us. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.